I took her back out and I took the big guy out and they're face to face. And I said, go. And the next thing you know, the big guy is laying on the ground, <laughs> eyes wide open. Like, how did she do that? Welcome to Indigitech season two, episode four. In this episode, Mike Kuba, security expert, proud Cape Bretoner. I met Mike at a two-week training session he was leading for a client of mine here in Nova Scotia. Found him to be a really neat guy, lots of great stories. He clearly loves working with First Nation communities. During his career, he's been a police officer, worked in corrections, some sheriff's work. And he tells me along the way he did some security work for some major gigs like ELO, Electric Light Orchestra, and even Guns N' Roses. So let's get into our conversation. And joining me now from Sydney is Mike Kuba. Mike, welcome to Indigitech. Well, well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to this. It's uh, it's my very first uh, podcast. And excellent. Uh, yeah, and and I'm excited. And and I've been telling people about this the last couple of days, and they're saying, "Send me a link. Send me a link." So, uh, friends, I'm going to send you a link. Uh, Richard's going to hook me up with that link, and and. Uh, you can listen to me and rancher banter for a bit. For those who aren't too familiar with Cape Breton or Sydney, can you tell us a bit about that part of the country? And I guess that's where you grew up, right? Yes, I'm I'm an original Sydney boy uh, on Cape Breton Island, which is uh, the eastern, northern eastern part of the province of Nova Scotia, uh, where we have the access point to Newfoundland. Our ferry uh, leaves North Sydney, which is not far from me, and travels to Newfoundland, connecting Newfoundland. Uh, we are the number one ranked island for tourist des- destination in North America. We live on a phenomenal, beautiful island. Um, you know, uh, we have, you can go whale watching, you can go through scenic mountains, uh, beautiful beaches. Uh, the culture is very unique. Uh, coal mining was a big thing here, as was steel making and fishing. And uh, we no longer have steel making. But now uh, our main focus is, is tourism. Uh, we struggle economically at, at times. Uh, right now, we're about to lose our airport, which is a big concern to everybody, and we're all fighting to get to maintain our airport. If if not, we drive five hours to Halifax to get the closest plane. So, for business and tourism and everything else, we we definitely need that. But you know, the community's rallying, and uh, people uh, together uh, produces power. And hopefully we'll save our airport. I'm sure we will. Absolutely. You uh, take me back to the uh, teenager years, teenage Mike Kuba. What were you into during your high school days? Girls. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I came from a family of a single mom with uh, eight children, and I'm the second youngest boy. And, and you know, as, as your typical teenager, I got involved in sports when I was young, which is which really helped me. I ended up playing a lot of soccer, and did that right through high school. And I played for the CBU Capers as well, and I played volleyball. And I played for high school and for Capers men's volleyball team. Um, but my <clears throat> the father figure in my life, he sailed. So uh, in the summers when I was fifteen, sixteen, I got to sail on the Great Lakes on ships. And uh, when I turned 18, graduated from high school, you know, I, I was going in the Navy. I signed up for the Navy. But at the same time, the Coast Guard, Canadian Coast Guard had a competition. And uh, 
I won the competition, and so I started sailing on the Canadian Coast Guard ships. I was on the Louis Saint Laurent, the Coroner Wallace, the Daring, which is search and rescue. And I did that for a few years, and um, then I had an opportunity, like, to go back to university, and my, uh, you know, we never had much money, um, but because of my scholarships through soccer and volleyball a big portion was paid so i, I went on to uh, cbu and uh worked a couple of years started that's where i actually started my security uh back then I, I started off as a campus police officer and became chief of the campus police and i i enjoyed it and during uh, my second year of university i applied to the atlantic police academy and i got accepted and i became a police officer after policing um, I wanted to work with youth, so I went down in Shelburne. I worked in Shelburne Youth Center for a number of years. Um, Shelburne being down on the South, South Shore, Shore Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. Yeah, South Shore, yeah. Nova Scotia. It was, a, it was a youth detention center for youth between the ages of 12 and 16. And Shelburne being a great community, and, and I was involved in the community playing baseball and coaching the senior hockey team and stuff like that. But we lived out in the woods, and, and you have to accept, my wife's a city girl, so I took a city girl to the middle of the woods and went to work for 12 hours a day and left her in the woods in a home. Uh, and we had a small baby, and she looked at me, she said, Mike, I can't live here no more. It's beautiful, the people are great, but I'm just looking at four walls all day long. We had one vehicle, and you know, we're a young couple, and that's where she spent all day in the home. Uh, you know, the highlight was every once in a while we get to go, go get groceries in Yarmouth, which is an hour and a half away. So I, I transferred. I transferred to to the sheriff's department here in Sydney. And then I switched over to a college. And I went teaching law and security at a college. And uh, I did that for five years. And I probably put out uh, five, six hundred students. And it was at that time I formed my own company, my own training security company, uh, which I would do, uh, go out and train security companies or help security companies set up. There was one part of law enforcement that I hadn't done yet, and that was corrections. So I wanted to be one who was able to experience it all. I'd, I've done policing, I've done sheriffs. So now I went and lived in a jail for 12 hours a day. So I, moved, I transferred over to the corrections. And I spent 10 years as a correctional officer, working inside a, uh, a provincial institution. Was that still in Sydney or in, yes. in the Halifax? No, that was region? that was still in Sydney. Yeah, the, the Cape okay. Correctional Facility. It's one of the the three uh, provincial jails that they have now. Back then there was five or six, but there's only three now. There's one here, uh, one in Thorgood or Thor, just outside of Anakin. Is it Thor, Thorburn? And there's one in Halifax. Um, so I, I did that for a number of years. And then, uh, in 2014, I had to have brain surgery and, um, it was probably from too many pokes to the head over the years between all my jobs. Um, and then after, after that, it was uh, time to relax. So I, I focused more on security and doing the training of the security, even though I was still doing it all along. And, uh, did a number of uh, communities around here. I did uh, Wagmacook, uh, First Nation community, and, and just outside of uh, Bedeck. I've done Escazoni. I've done two different companies up in Escazoni, uh, one that's still operating today and one that has since stopped. And 
I've also done uh, Bapnagag, and I have done Escazoni, uh, doing all the, you know, for <clears throat> for the community members, do all the security training for the community members. Yeah, that's where where we first met was when you were doing, I think, a two-week training session at uh, Bakunkak, just east of Antigonish. And it's a small community. I think there are 450 on-reserve community members, so a pretty small population base <clears throat> from which to you know, recruit. What were there, 20 or 30? 24. I said 24. I, I was really proud of that class, and I'm proud of all of them, but I was really proud of that class. And the fact that day one, 24 came into my class, and upon graduation that day, all 24 were still there. Nobody missed a day. Everybody went to class every day. Some people wanted to stay longer <laughs> after class. And, and it was, it was great, amazing people. The community was so supportive. Uh, the CEO, Rose Paul, is uh, care so much about our community and, and uh, put this course on for them. And today, um, the, one of the reasons, of course, they started this course is they opened up uh, Bayside Center, which is a gas and food and convenience and liquor store uh, located just off the highway there. And so her, and, and a gaming facility. So her whole security staff that she did train are all working there. And, and you know, supervisors that, <clears throat> supervisors have developed and and it was really good i'm really proud of the people that have, that have gone there and uh to make them friendships too is is phenomenal because you know you get the christmas message and from them and you just get a message every once in a while hi mike we miss you and stuff like that so to get into yeah. a community and be part of it you know and I, I knew nobody there uh but within two weeks i had lifelong friends so and it's fun you know like tell you example of up there, there was a, a lady and a small little lady. And we were doing a self-defense class in the afternoon. And it was just about arm bars and wrist locks and takedowns and stuff like that. And I tell all my students, I'm not, I'm not here to teach you how to fight and beat up somebody because that's the last thing you ever want to do as a security officer. Um, but you, you, you do have to learn to defend yourself. So I took the smallest lady in the class. And I said, you're going to take on that biggest guy in the class over there. And you're going to put him down. And she was like just shaken and terrified. And there's no way I'm going to get him down. So I took her to the side away from everybody else into uh, the gym. I don't know where the gym part is, where nobody can see it. And I showed her a self-defense move. And, and uh, I took her back out. And I took the big guy out. And they're face to face. And I said, go. And the next thing you know, the big guy is laying on the ground, <laughs> eyes wide open. Like, how did she do that? Everybody in the class is cheering, and she got a smile ear to ear. So, of course, now everybody wants to know how to do that, right? If memory serves, this guy was about 6'3", 250, do you think? Would he oh, be that big? Oh, yes, God, yeah, 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 yeah. Stephen's at least that big, right? And probably a little bit heavier than 250. She is well under 100 pounds and, you know, five foot one. You know, she was proud to hit five feet when she hit it. And uh, she couldn't believe she did. But one of the things I said is, please don't go home and do this to your husbands, uh, because what happens is the husbands are going to come in tomorrow and beat up Mike. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but of course, some of them went home and did that move on their husbands or boyfriends or or whatever, and you know, like they're all, they're all come back. Oh, I want to learn more. I want to learn more. So that's the key: is to keep them uh, keep them involved. 
show them that they can do it, that there is no limitations to what they can do. In light of uh, COVID-19 and people still shopping in large retail establishments where there are security staff, they must find themselves in a difficult spot because there could be members of the public complaining that somebody's in the store not wearing a mask or not observing safety protocols. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be a lot of stores don't want to don't want to push it. They don't want to aggressively challenge customers on this. So mm-hmm. it must be a tricky balance there. It definitely is. And it comes down to policies, uh, the policy and procedure of the stores. You know, if Walmart is adamant that uh, you were required to wear a mask, people have to remember that stores are privately owned. Walmart's privately owned. Uh, if you walked into Walmart, Richard, and uh, I was a security officer, and for no reason, you just walked in the store and I said, Sir, you have to leave. And you would say to me, why? And I would say to you, sir, I don't have to give you a reason. We, do, we don't want your business here. And at that point, you become a trespasser and you have to leave. So these stores are privately owned. So the guy goes in, oh, it's a public place. No, it's not a public place. It's a private place, right? So the rules and the policy procedures go with the company. You know, and they, and they get their, with the COVID and that from the Department of Health and Department of Justice and stuff like that. And it does put a, a, a security officer on the spot as to what he can do. And, you know, like if, if the policy says nobody's getting in without a mask, then that's the policy and that's the policy. What happens is sometimes is, oh, you know, somebody gets in. Oh, I was in Walmart the other day. I never had a mask on. So you come in the next day and you don't have a mask on. And the security guard says, no, you're not coming in. Right. So if if it's a uniform policy, you have to stick to that policy. That It's like having children. If you treat one different than another, it comes back to bite you. Yeah. So it's very important, you know, to find out the policies. Uh, it's, it's very important for the guards to follow the policies you know, they can't let their aunt in or their cousin in because they don't have a mask on. But also the communication between the people. You know, it's the difference between, sir, put your mask on, or, sir, we have a policy in the store that says you have to wear a mask, right? If there's a medical reason, I can understand that, right? And a lot of people say, yeah, I got a medical reason, right? Um, and you can't challenge, you can't ask people's medical reasons. But you still have the right to refuse, even though he has a medical reason, because it's, it, it is a private place. So the store, you can say, look, sir, I understand, but the policy is. So it's the approachability on, on how you do that and, and go sure. up to people. So, yeah. Good yeah, people sense, that. relationship skills. Uh, you've got a, a strong reputation as someone who does a lot of work with uh, First Nation communities here in uh, Mi'kmaq, uh, Nova Scotia, or Atlantic Canada. Mm-hmm. Did, did you purposely set out to, to work with that market and start building relationships? Because you do work with non-Indigenous clients sure. too, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, no, I, I never started out uh, working with uh, you know, thinking uh, my best friend uh, Peter Christmas growing up, and we, we were hung around every day. And Peter ran the radio station in, in Member Two at one time. He started the radio station. I don't know if he knew Peter or not. Uh, so I, I've always had a close bond with it with the community anyway, and, and spent time there up in the community and, and stuff like that. And the training part of it just came naturally. Um, with, without blowing my horn, I one of the guys, uh, I got a phone call one day. Uh, I, I, 
I've done mostly all the major concerts here, organized and run the security for the major concerts in Cape Breton and even some up in the mainland. And and uh, I got a phone call one day and a guy says, putting on a concert uh, down in, in um, down north, I guess would be the easiest way to describe north, northern Cape Breton. Uh, are you interested in, in overseeing the operations? And I said, well, he said, look, I was told you were the best. That made me feel good um, because I, I never set out to be the best. I just wanted to be the guy that says, hey, you know what? I'm proud of you. You're, you're a product. You, you know, you're a good security guard. You have a job. Uh, in, in, the, in the community, indigenous community, I'm firmly a believer that, hey, you know, self-government is a great thing. Uh, Escazoni uh, now has their own security department. They, they had an outside. Two types of uh, security is contract and in-house. Escazoni was hiring a contract company, paying thousands of dollars each month and uh, to the contract company to provide security in their community. And they were hiring some some locals, but there were you know there wasn't that many. And and when you go into a community like Escazoni. It's, it's, you know, it's a very large community. Uh, so Escazoni decided, hey, you know what? We can do this ourselves. Keep the money within the community. Hire people. Pay people with the, you know. So it, 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 it got people off. Uh, some of the employees were on assistance. It got them people off assistance. That money stayed in the community. Uh, and uh, they're doing the hospitals, they're doing the schools, they're doing the nursing home. They're, you know, they're doing everything out there. During COVID, at one time, they had a lockdown from each end of the, uh, and and they work quite closely with the with the RCMP too. So when 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 they're doing their own, uh, as Bump and Gag is Bayside, they don't have to call in a company from Halifax or Anakinish to say, hey, we need security. We're now employing your own. So, so the self-governing thing is, is great because it saves them money. They're employing people, and and they're getting you know people trained to uh, to do this stuff. And and also it allows them to form a contract company, so that if they need security at Irving Ship, they can get a hold of Buck McGeg, they can get a hold of Escazoni. Hey, do you guys have a, a contract security? Yeah, well, put a bid in, and now they're making money, right? So. It's it, it. I'm very proud of it. I've I've trained yeah. hundreds of uh, First Nation and and I love it. I'm I'm very proud of what they do and what they have done. So well, two the potential there. Uh, I know there's a huge project under development, Pierre Day LNG Export Terminal, down in the Goldboro area along the eastern shore, and. Uh, you know, the company has signed agreements with the Mi'kmaq and they want the Mi'kmaq to provide the big, I guess it's the accommodation part and the dining and the food and whatnot, but security obviously has to be a big part of a project of that magnitude. And uh, there could be opportunities there for uh, indigenous security staff. Well, they're definitely looking at that. And, and I know about that. And that was one of the rings with, with Bupnik, uh, that that this Security can go down to LNG or, as I call it, LNG, the, the the gas company, and and they make really good money. You know, like it's not, you know, what's unfortunate that has happened in, in the the security industry is they tend to be lower paying jobs. Now, when you're in charge of, you know, ten million, a hundred, two hundred million dollar building or facility and stuff like that, you should be paid more than minimum wage. 
right? Because it, it's a large responsibility. It's important, and and the and the use of security is getting more and more important since 9/11. And uh, the important part is to get them trained, you know, to to get these, you know, to make them aware so that they're not getting hurt, the public is not getting hurt. There's professionalism, and and that's what I like to do. And 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 I. I belong to the American Society of Industrial Security, uh, which is a 10,000-member organization. I'm also the only proctor, the only instructor for the International Foundation for Protection Officers. So when I put the people through that course, it's a month long, they're able to work anywhere in North America. Um, and some places require it. If you go to Vegas, most of the most of the hotels require that you that you're an international foundation protection officer graduate. So they can do that. I've, I've had students, some of my students uh, worked all the way up to deputy superintendent at Halifax Correctional Center, RCMP officers. So some of them used it as a stepping stone to move on. And, and that's really cool too. So. Yeah. Off the top of our conversation, you mentioned the tourism industry and obviously COVID-19 has had a huge impact. I mean, not only in Cape Breton, but around the world. When the industry picks up again, uh, are there opportunities in there for security, do you think? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, COVID may lighten, but it, will, it won't go away for a long time. So the, the role of the security has to step up. So there should be more employment going on with the tourism industry, you know, with cruise ships coming into Sydney, you know, with the tourists going up into our highlands tourists arriving in in Halifax and stuff like that you know one of the things that got canceled because of um, COVID this summer was the North American Indigenous Games uh, which is huge you know it's 5,000 participants and there were 16 different venues and stuff like that which it's going to be hundreds of security officers so and and that's going to take place again Uh, so the need for security officers is growing and growing, but the need for trained security officers is the most important thing. And that's why I hope to continue to be busy, um, whether it be here in New Brunswick and PEI or wherever it is, uh, to train security departments, not only in, in First Nation groups, but all security companies. Uh, yeah. Security companies in general have to train their officers now. You know, like I said, uh, a couple of the larger companies do it. But some of the, the, the um, local businesses, uh, the local security companies, you know, they don't. And, and um, it's important. It's important. And the more training they get, the more money they'll get paid because they're worth more money. So it'll work out. I'm sure people will be uh, yeah intrigued about what you talked about in terms of specialized training and different models of security. If any of our podcast listeners want to reach out to you, Mike, what's the best way for them to do that? But to call, uh, my company is MBK Security Services. Uh, it's just initials of my name. Uh, I use my uh, email. It's Mike, M-I-K-E, Kuba, K-U-B-A, at hotmail.com. After I thought about inviting you on the show, I went to your LinkedIn profile right away. Mm. And that seems to be up to date, too. So they could probably get you through there. And as well. through LinkedIn, yes. And, and through Facebook and social media. Uh, Instagram, all the social media. I don't do TikTok yet. My granddaughter's <laughs> teaching me how to do it. 
Um, I'm staying away from that altogether. Too much on the go already. Well, well, she's kind of afraid of my dance moves, right? So I, I, I can understand that I'm, you know, I'm 260 pounds and six feet tall, but something. Well, I really appreciate. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is awesome. I'm so glad we're able to connect and work our way through a few little uh, techie issues to get us uh, get us on here together. So, thank you, Mike, and all the best in 2021. Thank you, and I look forward to you uh, meeting seeing you again. I hope uh, your sledding goes good. Were you doing grandson sledding or something? To the listeners, we can see each other on video here in Squadcast. And I don't know, Mike, if that red mark on the bridge of my nose shows up, but <laughs> that's what I, took I, <laughs> I knew that. I didn't, want, I didn't want to bring it up. But <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for doing that. <laughs> I'll know better next time. Let's put it that way. Papa needs a face shield. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Mike Kuba for a, a fun interview. This episode was sponsored by Perry Podcast Productions, my own company that can help you wherever you are on your podcast journey, whether you're just starting out or thinking about a change in direction. Details at richardperry.ca. I would ask that if you like this show, please tell a friend or two. You can even recommend a guest for an upcoming episode. Get in touch by email, podcast at richardperry.ca. I really appreciate that. And thank you for listening to Indigitech.